Hi, it's Tony Nash with Plugged and Unplanned. And I have with me Michael Jacobson, author, entrepreneur, mentor, coach. Um, must have a business card that's about a foot and a half long. Um, a lot of titles to your name, keynote speaker, etc., etc. And he's written a book called... Entrepreneurs, Mavericks and Empire Builders. There you go. And uh, I'm here this time with the new equipment that we've got for our podcasting. So I am the same person. If it doesn't sound like me before, it's me. So I'm excited to have someone who's not only um, teaching about entrepreneurship and coaching, but he's actually done it as well. So I think um, that always distinguishes people and their backgrounds. So it's, it's really great. I think we're going to be able to dive into myriad of questions and and uh, go off in different directions today and just explore some things that maybe we weren't expecting which is how i always like to run these sessions and and see what we can learn uh, together and hopefully those that are listening in will will be able to learn as well welcome michael thanks tony thanks for having me today pleasure just flown in from the uk just flown in from the uk you didn't you didn't watch the uh the english win the the final did you, you were fortunately i was actually on the plane when that happened oh right okay, but so. uh a few few of the british people gloating when yeah. i when i landed because it's <laughs> funny because you know when you think about england you think about the empire yeah and and therefore your book is about empire builders mm, that's true um big difference when i think about just as i read that you know and i think about the the um mavericks entrepreneurs empire builders one does kind of conjure up different profiles of people, not necessarily the same. Um, is that your experience? Because you interviewed a lot of people for your book. Is that is that how you can kind of, do you feel like you separate them or do you throw them all into the one bucket? Well, the word entrepreneur on its own is quite misunderstood, uh, even by people who are entrepreneurs. We're all called entrepreneurs, and but it doesn't come with a rule book like, if you're a doctor or a lawyer or a banker, you, know, you you immediately say that and you know other people know who you are, what you do, and possibly more importantly, you know. So entrepreneurs are also so so entrepreneur I think is the is the overriding word, but but people who are entrepreneurial are somewhat of a maverick and, and that's meant in the in the best possible way. And many of them are also building empires. So we felt that it was kind of fitting and a bit, a bit more detailed to, to go on because there are a couple of people in the book. I interviewed 23 people, uh, both in the UK or, and Australia. They, they're global people, really, people in Australia who have global businesses or global brands. But I also interviewed, apart from some of the, the textbook entrepreneurs such as uh, Jerry Harvey, uh, I also interviewed an, an Anthony Hallis who started Sea Folly, the global swimwear and lifestyle brand. Also interviewed Jimmy Barnes, Lee Kernigan, and Alan Jones. And these people, you would quite rightly say, well, hang on, they're not really running a business. And that's true. But what they are doing, they're, they're definitely, in the nicest possible way, mavericks because they're, they're really you know, going through to, to start a career as a, as a rock star or to start a career as a, as a radio personality when you're a school teacher and then turn around and have created a a brand where you know you are a household name across the country that's that takes a bit of a maverick mindset and so what those people have created is 
is is a brand, and then they've created, in the case of Alan and 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 Jimmy and Lee Kearney, and they've created, a, you know, an empire around the the money that they've made from from building their brand. So we felt that they they kind of fitted in with with that broader descriptor. But but as I said, we do have you know textbook entrepreneurs like Jerry and and like Anthony from Sea Folly. Also, you know, there are other people that that I interviewed who aren't directly entrepreneurs, but who are key supporters for entrepreneurs. And what I mean by that, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Saul Klein, who lives in the UK. He's a South African guy. He was one of the early executives at Skype, and then he founded a business called Love Film, um, which was a bit like an early stage Netflix, which he subsequently sold to, to Amazon for, for a lot of money. And then he said, so he was an entrepreneur, but then he set up what's now one of Europe's leading venture capital firms. But, but interestingly, and this is where it's important for entrepreneurs, they lend seed money, or, or not lend, they invest. So they're investing you know, smallish amounts of money, and small by small, I mean a million, two million pounds rather than 10 or 20 million. But you know, he is one of, the, one of Europe's top venture capitalists. So it, the point of that story is that you know, these are people who are critical to an entrepreneur's survival. You know, it's great to get 20, 30 million later, but in the early days, maybe not in, 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 in your case, but in some people's cases, you know, 500,000, a million dollars, a million pounds, that's, that's, that's what you need. And so another interesting person I interviewed was, was Dick Porter, who, you know, is not known at all in Australia, although he is Australian. He's lived in London for 40 years. He started STA Travel, which is one of the biggest travel agencies in the world and, you know, probably one of the one of the few sort of privately started travel agencies are still in operation. So, you know, there's just a bunch of really interesting people that, that sort of fit under those those three descriptors. Mm. And so when you were interviewing them, and I don't like to go too much into the author's books because otherwise I'm going to give it all away <laughs> and there's no point in buying. That's it. Right. But, You've got to buy it and read every word. But out, out of curiosity, did, did your interviews have a very standard format or or and you're asking the same questions or did they go off in different tangents based on the different people how did you how did you uh, extract the 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 words of wisdom or the insights well firstly i consider myself so fortunate because i spent most of last year traveling between australia london and other parts of europe sitting down and interviewing these people i was like free mentoring where i actually got to write a book out of it it was amazing what I did was I sat down with, with everybody and yes, there was a, a bit of a formula, but with some people it went off in, in tangents and, you know, Jerry Harvey, for example, who's, you know, a man with, with one or two commitments, you know, I ended up sitting with him for about two and a half hours and, you know, I was so grateful that he gave me that time, but every one of those minutes was filled with, with him talking about it and went off on all sorts of interesting tangents as somebody with such a rich and colorful history would um what i really tried to do tony was there's you know there's there's many business books in the world we know that what this book is is trying to do is as follows and well so let me start by saying what the what the formula was so i started off by asking people what what was your vision for this business what well, what was your vision at all when you started it's all very easy to read you know, the rich lists and all sorts of stuff like that. And, you know, and people's identity is condensed to a dollar figure. No doubt that money is a scorecard of success in business. There's not, that's not a question. If, if you don't have a decent dollar sign next to your name, you know, in the business world or in commercial business, 
you haven't been successful in, in the broader sense, no question about it. But when you read the top 200 rich list or the, the, the BRW rich list as it was, uh, you know, you've got you know, a paragraph or two, maybe, you know, one and a half paragraphs on somebody's whole career and it's the dollar figure that's supposed to represent that person. So I wanted to really get beneath, beneath that. You know, you could say, well, Jerry Harvey's a billionaire. That's, that's his identity. Well, that's, that's just that's one part of his identity and that explains, yeah, he's done well. Now, let's take a step back and go back to when, you know, he was starting, when he was driving around Sydney looking at sites back in the days before there was even zoning laws and you know, he didn't even need to get zoning for a shop. He just said, that's a good, that's a good location. Let's set up a shop there. I did well. Let's set up another one. You know, and what I tried to then do was say, well, what was your vision when you were doing that? Could you have conceived that you know you would one day be running you know a global business from with with stores from Sydney to Singapore to Slovenia? And the answer in most people's cases is no, because most of us don't have a crystal ball where you can really tell exactly how things are going to be. But what I found was uniform with everybody was they did have some vision. They did have some sort of internalized roadmap or, or intuition about where they where they wanted to go, where they thought that they could go. You know, it's in some people's cases it was very clear, other people's cases it was a gut feel, but everybody sort of knew the the path that they should be travelling along. And so that was really interesting for me because I wanted to find that out because usually that that part of a person's story is, you know, in business publications is 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 left out talk about someone started off the rags and then you talk about the riches i want to know what's the bridge that joined it and that was the formula because to me that's what other people and the book it's not really just a business book because it's it's also if you just want to find out about a bunch of fascinating people's lives even if you're not in business you can enjoy the book because their lives are all really amazing anyway but but for those who are in business point was well what is the bridge that joined the the rags to the riches and what what can people learn from that about how they can model it, how they can emulate it for their own businesses or their own, um, even with even people working in corporations who you know, have to be entrepreneurial within the organisation. How can they learn from these people? So that was a formula. What's your vision? And secondly, I wanted to know what their passion was. And the reason for that was because when you're running a business, it, you know, it, there is ups and downs and highs and lows, and that's usually within every hour of every day usually experience highs and lows especially as an entrepreneur and even even jerry said at, at his age and his level of success you know i'm still experiencing lows every day he said it's just that i've got the financial capacity to withstand that you know before we went into the interview he said he's one of his horses worth 500 grand had just dropped dead he was sad about it but he can afford the 500 grand point being everybody has ups and downs and so i think it's really important that that, that other people that, that are in business, those of whom that are startups, those of whom who are in big organisations undertaking entrepreneurial projects for, for big corporations that are trying to, to stay relevant, or people who are just like, like you or I who are running you know, decent-sized businesses ourselves trying to look for, look for an edge, look for what other people have done, look for what other people have done right. Does it resonate with us? How do we take that on? That's a good point. You just said... Because you just touched on people like us who are running our own businesses. And um, I'd read up a little about you before you 
rocked up here, so I was somewhat informed. But you you have run your own businesses. Yes. Just tell us a little about what you've done. And, and so I assume in the book you haven't t- talked too much about your own story. You've shone a spotlight on, on other people. But what what have you accomplished or even yes. some of the... The, the down days absolutely the the my main business now is is a property business I have a property business in in Europe so I commute between London and Sydney I've tried to find the most the two cities about as far apart as you can go and and, and uh, commute between them but nevertheless I'm predominantly based in London I commute to Sydney in in my business is based in London and we have an office in Bratislava which is in Slovakia and we we develop properties in Slovakia, Czech Republic, Romania, and the UK. The properties are leisure properties, so they're entertainment arenas, convention centres, leisure leisure properties with with hotels and trampoline parks, and you know, all these kind of properties. Because when I lived in Australia, that was also a business that I was involved in. Um, I was the chairman of a company which operated uh, various different entertainment complexes around Australia. So, so this is a property business which I'm which I'm developing, uh, and I also was uh, was a shareholder and board member of Dirty Dancing, which was a musical which our group bought the global rights to from the, the brand from the movie. We turned it into a musical and it played has played all around the world, including on London's West End for for a number of years. So that was another business that I had that I was involved in. And so yes, to this right now, I still am actively in business, and that that's something that I love. I love growing this property business, and you know I love working in all of the different countries and the different cities that I work in, where we can develop these properties because these are these are properties that will, that will be iconic for the cities. So I suppose they're not they're not they sort of punch above their weight, I suppose, because if you're building an entertainment arena in a city or a convention center or a leisure property it's something that ends up becoming a community asset and it really helps to activate and you know do something really amazing for the community so so I love this business and my other passion though is teaching people and working with with entrepreneurs and so I I do both I, I spend my time running my own business and and then running programs coaching programs speaking writing books working with governments and, and corporations, particularly in, in, in the UK and Europe, um, advising them on, on entrepreneurialism and on innovation. I was um, an honorary advisor to the Vice President of the European Investment Bank on innovation and entrepreneurialism. So, so all of these things fall under the, the category of, of, of business education, I suppose, if you want to categorise it. And it's a passion of mine. And some of it makes money, some of it doesn't make money, but I love doing it. And yes, I try and employ the, the the experience that I have every day of actually building a business. Plenty of people who sort of teach, but they don't do. And some they, they do also bring a great mindset to the you know great attributes to to the table and their writings and their speakings. But you know what I try and showcase is the good, bad, and ugly of of business, and you know how you can try and avoid the bad and ugly. But you know really to do that. If you're an entrepreneur, I know from my own day-to-day experience, you have to really understand what that means and what it is to be an entrepreneur. If you don't know what you actually are, you know, are you and what you're doing and sort of what that what that stands for, and look at other people who are doing 
doing similar things like the people in this book who might not be in the same sector but who are also entrepreneurs. If you don't know that, entrepreneurialism is a really lonely and, and difficult journey with, without, without a roadmap. So yes, I try and employ and, and engage people with, with the types of issues that I face. And if I also face issues and I try out and try and go out and find solutions from people, many, many solutions I've received in my own uh, time with interviewing these people. But then I try and inculcate those those ideas into other people, you know, because so other people don't have to go through those issues. Mm. So, so you, so we know where we are, where you are today. So let's go back to your bridges, a few bridges back. Mm-hmm. Into where, how did you end up where you are here, doing what you're doing at quite a global level? Must be very re- rewarding, and many of us would go, "Wow, that that must be an amazing." Uh, business life to be operating in but where what the origins of that sent you down the track to where you are today what were some of the first bridges where you came from so i started off in in finance and uh, and stockbroking actually back in the days when there was people were called stockbrokers i'm not that old but old enough to to remember that that's what people used to be called they're investment bankers now and the that was something i was interested in I now see that it was the it was the entrepreneurial aspects of the buying and the selling, and you know this was what I loved about that. But <clears throat> I ended up then getting getting drawn into a into a business that that I then became chairman of here, which which was a, a property slash entertainment business, which operated the Capitol Theatre in Sydney, the the Sydney Convention and Exhibition Centre, the Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre. And I got involved with that company. I became the chairman, and, and I was a shareholder through through our consortium. And we then developed other other properties, such as Spark Arena, which is a thirteen thousand seat arena in Auckland. We did some things in the US. And the reason I mo- moved into that company was because, being when I was in stockbroking, even though the, the the excitement and the buying and the selling was was exciting, I wanted to be. I've realised now it was the entrepreneur in me. I wanted to be building a business, so I moved into this into this other business, and then, you know, we we spent ten years building building this business. Some of some of the assets, such as Brisbane Convention and Exhibition Centre, Sydney Convention and Exhibition Centre, which has now been rebuilt, Spark Arena in Auckland. Some of them, you know, have become globally successful. Not that I take any or all of the credit for that, because as an entrepreneur, you know, you are you are still part of a team, and that's also another critical thing. But nevertheless, uh, they're very successful. And so, after uh, after that, somewhere along the way came Dirty Dancing, which was a business which I became a, a, a shareholder in and, and producer of. And our global headquarters for that was in in London, and this was where the majority of activity was taking place. And you know, even though we premiered in Australia in two thousand and four. The, the global headquarters was in London and that was, you know, London's West End is really the epitome of theatre globally. So I moved over there as a result of that and, and that was really what, what took me to London originally. I moved over for a year to, to be involved with that and, and to be working in the headquarters and, and you know, working on the, on the European and, and American expansion, which, which did take place, but, you know, 10 years Plus, later, I'm still living in London, and this is all part of part of the journey because I got over there, and 
ended up you know exiting these other these other businesses exiting the dirty dancing business and exiting that investment and while i was in london i was right as the global financial crisis was coming to an end just as david cameron had, had become prime minister of the uk which was i guess 2009 uh, 10 after he took over from gordon brown and at that time he was saying you know we've got to really create an atmosphere of startups and create an atmosphere of entrepreneurialism in this country so he and his administration then went out into the business community and you know got a number of business leaders to to be involved in some you know pretty high profile exciting initiatives and i was invited to be involved in one initiative called startup britain which was a national initiative supported by the government funded by sponsors um at which went right across the country running events and you know all sorts of education programs events with the pm events with the chancellor you know events with with all sorts of high profile people with the, with the point being and the goal being to really stimulate startups and and really start entrepreneurialism back in the country after the gfc had damaged it and so i got involved in that and then that began that began you know and, and sparked a real passion in me to be working with other entrepreneurs and i found that you know when i'm working with them and when i was coaching them and when i was talking to them you know I, I, as i still do to this day even when i get paid to do it you know, i just tell people straight and i think that resonated with a lot of people at a lot of those startup events back then and even today even in this country in australia there's a lot of backslapping going on and a lot of you know people just saying sugar coating things even failure is sugar coated where people say you know fail fast and all this kind of stuff but the 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 attitude that i always took was was you know just be frank with people but but try and uh, you know try and try and just try, try and talk to them as if you're a mate and you know so i really loved being involved in the startup britain it's credited as helping to start over a million businesses in the uk and so that then started a journey i then set up a company and we then ran, started running trade missions for governments in europe we, so we worked with the Czech government, we worked with the, the Slovak government, we worked with the Polish government, bringing, bringing in startups from those countries funded by the government to, to bring them into the UK and help get them funding and help get them business partners and help, help them grow. Um, something that's going to be slightly more difficult to do now with Brexit. But, but that company operated for a season and uh, um, you know, for about three or four years we did some amazing, amazing things. So... I really started then to branch out, Tony, into this business education side, which then, you know, became a, a, a predominant part of my life. Is that is that a formal business, or is is that more you just one on one? It's a collection you, of businesses. You have you have a team of people who are part of that whole group. Yes. What's that company called? Well, it doesn't have it's a collection. I mean, it's it's a holding company per se, but it but it, it manifests itself as a collection of uh, of different different businesses but it doesn't have a brand it doesn't have a retail brand name but it's an education yeah we have a vision to 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 engage in entrepreneurial education it manifests itself through keynote speaking through writing books and then through running these programs we the business that ran the trade missions was called global entrepreneurs agency for example but it, it shows up in in a variety of different company names but always with the vision of of supporting entrepreneurs and supporting their work in one way or another Mm -hmm. So I think where I'd like to take the the conversation next is I've benefited a lot by traveling to the UK, traveling to the US to look at um, 
e-commerce, to look at the book industry, to help me formulate um, tactics and strategies to develop Booktopia over the years. You have a pretty, um, I would say for us here in Australia, pretty interesting perspective of the differences in entrepreneurship or the, or when you come to Australia and and someone's listening right now and, and you're seeing, oh my God, like in Australia they're not doing this or they're not doing that or there's there's these opportunities. How, how does how does entrepreneurship play out through Europe and, and Australia and the differences and and where where you feel there's like literally nuggets lying on the ground here because no one's really taking the taking the opportunity or even can't even see the nugget because um, their mindset is is um, made up in a certain way. Yes, <clears throat> I think it's a great point that you made. One of the things that I love about living in London is that it's truly a global city and so far as financial affairs it is arguably or even not arguably the cap the financial capital of the world this is very important when it comes to entrepreneurship because most entrepreneurs need some kind of money when they're starting a business and one of the things that the uk does great just to cherry pick right off the top is they've got a program called the Enterprise Investment Scheme, EIS it's called, which basically provides tax incentives to anybody who invests in a qualifying startup. And almost all startups qualify. There's, there's a few preclusions, but, but basically the, the vast majority qualify. And so what that means is that, and I, and I think it's something like a 30% tax rebate or, or tax deduction and I think it's 100% capital gains tax free on the investment when you sell out. It's really appealing. And what that has meant, meant for that market was that it became filled with, with angel capital. Now, <clears throat> capital without advice is obviously very dangerous, but, but nevertheless, it is good also to have capital because the majority of people can't start a business without it. So what it's meant is that even people who aren't what, what you or I or what, what society would classify as wealthy or rich, who you would normally say, well, yeah, they're definitely an angel investor. It's meant that professionals, the bankers and lawyers and people who are, you know, they're not doing too badly, but people who do have 20, 50, 100 grand to spare, it's, they can really afford to, to park that money in a startup because as well as backing the, the business itself, they're getting this tax rebate and it's really supported entrepreneurialism and it's one of the best as far as I can see one of the best schemes in the world it's probably not something which we should or would continue forever because I think long term it could create a a bubble because once again too much capital and not enough advice can be damaging but you know so far as the last four or five years and so far as being a real shot to the arm it's been really successful and you know I wish they would do something like that in this country because I think that so far as the other part of your question Australia which I love, and Australian, and so I can say what I like about Australia, and I, in an adoring way, I think Australia by nature has a bit of a dichotomy in the sense that, on one hand, because we're physically isolated, oftentimes we don't think as globally as we need to. Then, on the other hand, and I'm guilty of this myself, when you do have success, you leave the country, and what we need to do here is to is to work out how, especially with entrepreneurs, how we can inculcate that global thinking because when you're living in Europe and the Northern Hemisphere, 
they're all pretty close to each other. The UK can work hand in hand with Silicon Valley because they're close. Time zones are similar. You know, UK and Europe, you're talking about an hour's difference. So, you know, London to Frankfurt to, you know, Madrid, the, 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 they're all on the same page in a proximity sense. Australia's not, so we physically isolate it. That can lead to an isolation in terms of thinking. On the other hand, we don't want people to become successful and just leave the country. This country needs to build up its entrepreneurial ecosystem. So I think that this is something that everybody needs to, to bear in mind. The financial community or anybody who, who can invest or support startups needs to bear it in mind. Anybody who can support startups and entrepreneurs with advice needs to bear it in mind. The third point is startups is not the only area that needs to be addressed. We've got two million small and medium enterprises in this country, all of whom, you know, let's face it, I mean, most small and medium enterprises have a rough time some of the time. What can, what can this country, and if it's not the government, it's who else, who, who can do something to make these businesses' lives easier, to make these businesses flourish, to help reduce the failure rate of these businesses? To me, that's a very important thing for this country as we transition away from a resources economy, as we you know, basically have a, have a very urgent need now to restructure the macro economy. Entrepreneurs and the people running those two million small and medium enterprises and the people creating the businesses of tomorrow, they're the ones that need to be supported. Now, does it matter if one of them has a moonshot and creates you know, the next Facebook? Yeah, that matters. That's amazing. That's fantastic. But that shouldn't be all we're focusing on. We shouldn't just be slapping each other on the back saying, hey, one day one of you is going to create another Facebook. That's great. But we need to, more, need, more work, in my opinion, needs to be done cultivating the day-to-day ecosystem. And that's what I've seen abroad. And that's what I would love to see here. And there's really no single solution to that. It's, I think it's a mindset. And it's something that, that if, if everybody involved, if every successful business owner gave some of their time, paid or unpaid, for mentoring or advisory, if you know universities all joined together, I know many of them are doing a great job. I've been doing a lot of work here with UTS in, in Sydney who, who are really focused on supporting entrepreneurialism. I know a lot of the state governments in this country are doing a lot as well, so I'm not saying that people aren't doing things. What I'm saying is that there just needs to be more, more needs to be done. More and more needs to be done until this country can successfully transition, you know, into into a new economic regime. And that's so. That's the macro, and the micro is how do we support entrepreneurs and small and medium businesses to do that? Out of curiosity, and because there's a couple of things, probably a little bit personally focused. So. And given that that I'm asking the questions, I can kind of direct it in whatever way I want. But there's two things. One, which is um, having done a little bit of, um, although we've never raised any capital and Booktopia just closed off $130 million in revenue without any capital. Congratulations. Start, starting from a $10 note. Uh, many people That's have That's a story in itself. It is. Um, so we, we didn't need to have that kind of um, financial support, although who knows where we would be if we did. Yep. Um, um, it's hard to imagine. But the um, given that we've been on a journey talking to potential financial investors, the markets, um, they're very, and this is just my opinion, 
they're very two-dimensional in their thinking mm -hmm. and they will look at the profit and the EBITDA and they're thinking in multiples of traditional businesses. They're not thinking that in Booktopias 10 years ago had 9 million in revenue and we just did 130 million in revenue and they're still trying to work out, well, based on your profit and your EBITDA, this is how I'm going to value your business. Not to the fact that you've actually grown by massive amount in a short space of time, which is different to how Silicon Valley and potentially in, in Europe who are, who are, who've got a good investment community. Um, so is, is, um, the, the investment, the entrepreneurial investment program that they're running in the UK by changing the landscape at a at a governmental level can that help change the way that investors can potentially look at business now we're not a small business we're not a startup no anymore so we've we've gone through which is going to go to the second half of my question but but we um so um do they do, is it really helpful just is it almost like you change the instruments Therefore, those that have the money who are looking to invest, is that how you experience the UK? That literally you, you, you change all the formulas, all the money starts coming in, and then all of a sudden people are going to have a real crack. Is that, is that how it worked? Absolutely. There's not a shadow of a doubt that having that structural assistance, I mean, who doesn't want a tax deduction? Everybody does. There's no doubt that that has had a significant effect on, on stimulating the the ecosystem, and there's not, a, there's just not a question that 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 government does have a policy role to play, whether it's on someone's agenda or not. At whatever time, okay, that's politics. But whoever, whatever government it is, colour, creed, whoever, government really does have a role to play. One of the things that I worked on uh, as well um, prior to being the vice president of the European Investment Bank, uh, Vasil Hudak was the minister of economy in Slovakia. And he was an ex-Merrill Lynch banker, and he approached me. And that's how I got. I got then got involved with Slovakia as a country. It's a country of five million people in in Central and Eastern Europe. And as Minister of Economy, he was saying, "Well, how do we create what will hopefully in ten years be the next Singapore or the next Israel? How do we, we're a tiny country, we're landlocked, we've got some amazing resources, but how do we? What do we do with this in a business sense?" So then I worked with him and a bunch of other private private people as well and we created some incredible government policy which then went hand in hand with the private stuff that was going on and now that country is you know transitioning enormously um, and will I think will continue to do so so your government policy plays a role to the second part of your question about about your business and your success yeah I mean this absolutely that this what can't ever be ignored is the fact that if you can actually start a business that does what it says on the tin and makes money um, pretty soon, and or you can do it, you know, on a on a relatively um, insignificant amount of investment or amount of money. Well, that's that's some would say it's old school. I would say that's like that's an amazing way to do it because you know sometimes people become professional fund quote unquote professional fundraisers. They're talking about the angel and then series A, B, C, D, all this other different fundraising, at the end of the day, raising funds is great, but really everything should be going towards supporting your business. So if you can start a business that actually makes money from day one and you don't need money, 
that's that's really utopia. Um, a couple of the people I interview in the book, I mentioned Saul Klein before. Another gentleman I interview called Frank Meehan, who another he's another Australian who lives in London. He runs a global, an Asian um, investment fund, and uh, he. So I asked both of them their views on on fundraising. I mentioned a few of a couple of things Saul said before, but to encapsulate, and the reason I interviewed these venture capitalists for this book was precise, and I chose ones who who I knew precisely had a pretty open mindset, hopefully different to the sort of mindset you might have you've I think touched on there, because it's really important that entrepreneurs understand what they should be expecting from their financiers because capital is a it's a resource that without being worked it doesn't do anything it just sits in the bank and dies so if someone has money all too often we think well you got money you know we're going to bow down to you because you might give us some of it sure absolutely we should all be grateful when we get money from someone by way of investment or from a client no doubt but that money does need to be worked so if you've got a good business proper business you need to know what you really can expect from your, what you, what you have a right to expect from your financier or from your investor, because the, ultimately they're giving money to a business which is run by an entrepreneur. So therefore, their money—and this is what Saul and Frank espouse very much—their money is really going towards supporting the vision of the entrepreneur. There's no point a, a, a financier coming in and saying, you know like the bad old days of venture capitalism, I'm going to give you the money and then I'm going to take 10 board seats and screw you over. Take it. That's absurd because the, the, the asset of the business, the goodwill of Booktopia, the goodwill of anyone's business started from the entrepreneur's vision, the idea, the passion. That's what, that's what they've built. So it's real, really vandalism and it's, it's an absurdity and it makes no business sense that someone would come in and try and take that in a different direction because the entrepreneur's vision is what's got the business to where it is. Not that we all can't do with advice, but to, to change that vision is almost blasphemous in a business because a vision, by definition, it can't be wrong. It's wrong if the business fails, but the business is succeeding. If somebody comes in and invests, they've got to support and accelerate that vision. And therefore, you know, so... And I talked... I mean, Saul in the book goes into great detail about, as does Frank about how they choose investments. And Saul's very open. He said out of 10 businesses that we invest in, seven of them don't succeed. He said, but regardless of that, we still work a lot with them to, to try and get them to, the, to a success. But, you know, he said, because we invest in them at a very early stage, they don't succeed. He said, but the other three do, and that's, that's how we, you know, end up getting our return. But he said, we don't, you know, we don't squeeze those ones that don't succeed. We don't, you know screw them over. He said, that's just all part of that. It's the metrics of this business. So it's really important that people understand that there are, there are a lot of investors out there, global investors, and there are a lot of people who do have that, that sanguine attitude and it's part of their business model. And they, they are there to do good and they are there to support, you know, and they are there ultimately to help grow the business. And if they're not, and if they don't support the vision, then you shouldn't be taking their money. You should show them the door because it's the same as having a lawyer or or a doctor or anybody else that doesn't see eye to eye with you. So um, 
the, the second part that I was thinking about in terms of, I was curious about in terms of the UK and having a, a very liquid and highly um, uh, motivated investment um, environment, both from people coming up with ideas and people that have money that can throw money at it. Um, so a lot of businesses can get started. What, what about those, what about the transition from getting started and going through those levels of that a business goes through? Obviously, there's pre-concept, there's uh, there's concept, there's pre pre-revenue, pre pre-profit. How is that unfolding in the UK with so many startups and potentially so many um, um, naive, um, inexperienced? entrepreneurs who had an idea but had shortfalls in other areas which they come to learn along the way i know having been an entrepreneur for run, paying myself my own salary yeah. for 23 years <clears throat> um so what what are we starting to see now as those that have made it to the next levels are they hitting uh, glass ceilings that they can't break through are there businesses that uh, fall over them because they just don't have the skill set they were funded so they could get going, but then they, they couldn't take it on. Where is it up to on the journey there? One of the things that the, the, the UK and, and in particular London does really well is this whole enterprise ecosystem. You know, out of, you know, out of any country in the world and any city in the world, I, I think, you know, sure, maybe other people are doing it as well as, but, you know, as sort of an outsider who, who also happens to live there and be actively involved in it, it's really good, and it would it would do anybody, be they policymakers, academics, or anyone who's who's anybody in, of influence in the ecosystem here in Australia, but do anyone a, a good turn and do themselves and, and Australia a favour to look at what's going on there because it's really terrific. There's a huge amount of support now. There's been a, a sort of recognition that that startups are a bit overcooked now, and. Now the whole ecosystem swung behind supporting people as they scale, and you know there's just a, a huge amount of support, and this is really important, supporting businesses as, the, as they as they scale and as they move on, because you can't over or you can over egg the whole startup thing, but the reality is, you know, sadly, and this is unacceptable, but 98% of startups will fail. So at some point, you've got to accept that some of them will fail and then take the ones that are scaling and, and hold on to them and really, really work them. And that's being done fantastically over there. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, I'm not saying that it's not being done here either, but that's just, that this is a great hero country, if you like, if you, if you want to talk about it in, in marketing terms. It's a hero product that people should, should study uh, and should look at because, because that is really, really important. How do you how do you take, as you said, you've paid yourself a salary for 23 years, you've had success. I, one of the main reasons that businesses fail, there's plenty of them, but one of the main reasons really is that that a, a startup or an entrepreneur or a business owner doesn't really understand how to balance the, the innovation with the execution. So one of the things I found in the book, for example, is that everybody was quite self-aware about where they, what their core skill set was. And entrepreneurialism is sector agnostic. Some of the people that started businesses were engineers. Some of the people 
Jerry Harvey's in the retail business. He's a salesman. Saul Klein is a leading venture capitalist. He studied engineering. I could go on with a bunch of others. The point is, so it doesn't, what matters is, and okay, so to state the obvious, if you studied engineering and you're now running a venture capital business, you can see how you would be employing that, entrep- that, that, that engineering mindset to, to studying numbers. If you're a salesman and you, you build a global retail chain like Jerry Harvey, you can see why it's beneficial that Jerry Harvey understands sales. Solomon Liu, who's not in the book, but just while we're talking about retail, who I haven't studied, although I, I met him, but the, he's not a salesman, I think, by his own definition. But he's, he's really a retailer. He understands the nuts and bolts of, of, of the fabric and the clothes and the margins. And, you know, so he comes at building a retail business. Jerry's got a retail business. Solly's got a retail business. But even they have different skill sets. So the point being that everybody that's a success, I think, knows where their dominant skill lies. And if you're building a business, you are not an expert in everything. Jerry Harvey is not an expert. Solomon Liu is not an expert. None of these people are experts in everything. But all of us, I'm sure you know it, all of I know it, all of us have to at least be aware enough to know what our core skill set is and what's what we're bringing to the table in our own business and what we're not. And so that's very important to know that, and a lot of people don't even think about it. Secondly, in building a business, you've got to balance the innovation with the execution. The inno- innovation is the ongoing innovation of growing your business, thinking ahead, what's happening, what are the trends, blah, 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 what can we do, how do we embrace technology. The execution is actually doing stuff, writing the emails, doing the work. A lot of people, sounds blindingly obvious, but plenty of people mistake Sending 10,000 emails a day, going to a billion meetings, being busy, busy, busy. I'm so busy all the time. That's How are you today? I'm busy. That People mistake that with building a business. I, I could, I or any, any of us could probably come, come up with a life-changing idea in the shower. I'm sure many of us have. Sitting on the couch, sitting on an airplane, driving the car. To come up with a life-changing idea or a business-changing idea does not require time. It requires creativity you cannot do that while you're sending 10,000 emails so you've got to realize in building a business as the entrepreneur you're the you're the conductor of the orchestra and half the time you're conducting the innovation half the time you're conducting the execution never works out at half and half but you've got to know where you are in any one day because if you only innovate you become a dreamer and your business will drift away if you only execute you could have success but eventually you come up with some come up against some uh, you know, macro headwinds or seismic shifts in your industry or sector changes and your business will die. So that's another reason the businesses fail, another thing that people can avoid. And so so these are the... And the third thing is there might not be a need. Is there a need for your product or service? Doesn't mean that you have to be, you know, finding the way to get to Mars, nor does it mean you have to invent anything novel. Steve Jobs, I talk about him in the book a bit in the in the introductory chapters... He did not invent the phone. We know Bell invented the phone. We also know that most of us who were over 40 or so quite happily used Motorola's and Nokia's and before that dial-up phones and phone boxes. No one, he did not invent the phone. He invented a concept where the phone would become an entertainment device. None of us knew that we needed it. No one saw it coming, but he had that vision. So, so when you say is there a need, when I say is there a need for the product, 
you might have to be that doesn't mean that someone's the whole marketplace is going to say you know michael we really need what you've got so you go and do that and we'll make you a very rich person of course it doesn't work like that you do have to rely on your intuition a bit and your vision but the point is if people just picture the old days you know hundreds of years ago the market stalls market stalls i sit i've got a stall i've got some products and people people walk up to me in the old in the in the town square think of europe in the old town square they either buy my product or they don't and you work out pretty quickly if someone's walking past your stall or if they're from talking to them do you like my product do you not like my product if you think about it and that's all a business is i got a stall stall might be a website it might be whatever however business operates but it's like an old market store so if you just make it in simplistic terms i've got something people want it or they don't if they don't want it i've got to talk to them and work out why like you would over the store if people are walking past your market store why aren't you stopping here they either say well your product's rubbish no one's ever going to stop there in which case maybe you need to go away and forget about it or change or it could be that you you don't have a very good personality. You're not talking to them right, not marketing right. So point is, people need to simplify their business. But plenty of businesses can be fantastic ideas that no one has a need for, and or they just they just aren't positioned correctly to service the need because nobody's going to come and say we really need you to think of something that we can spend a lot of money and make you a rich person by. Nobody's going to say that. So you've got to work that out for yourself. But they're the, those, they're the main reasons, in my observation, that businesses fail. And they're things that, that people could do well to try and think about and avoid. Pretty well from day one, we asked the same question for 15 and a half years, and that is, what do our customers want? And yep. by asking that, you go on a journey of discovery to find out, actually, that's what they want. Okay, well, they're responding to those. We, we, we added more stock and they started buying more. So therefore, let's hold more stock. Uh, they wanted to have, um, they wanted to have a better, better navigation through the site. They were, we were, we were able to measure it by increasing conversions. There's so many things that have, that have manifested out of answering the question um, constantly. So it's if you do it authentically, as in not as a jingoistic thing, but if you genuinely want to know what they want because mm-hmm. you want to sell it to them, that's obviously important i mean even in the beginning i remember when uh we when we started to hold stock and i could see that people were buying romance books and i thought why are they buying so many of those and i realized that bookshops and bookshop owners couldn't hand on heart uh sell a mills and boone style book because they didn't uh, read it themselves Mm -hmm. and so people who love that came to us because we actually we we started stocking more and more of it and it went just went crazy so it's not something that um that we knew we were going to do but we could see that that's what people were buying so therefore we just you focus on that you've got to pay attention to things yep. you've got to you've got to be open and you've got to if the you got to you got to have an open mindset and you've got to be listening and you've got to be watching the numbers and you've got to be uh paying attention to the way things work. My background in sales was uh, in solution selling as a recruitment consultant. And and you've got to understand, as a recruiter, actually, you've got two customers. You've got the client who wants to hire someone and you've got someone that wants the job. And so you're talking to two customers. So it's not like being in, in the market stall going, what sort of 
fruit do you want or what sort of clothes would you like to wear? Yes. Uh, you, you're actually kind Two of sides. Yep. listening and, and matchmaking. And, and that is how I've thought about the book industry. People are looking for a book and I'm going to work out how I can Let's match you up with a book that you're going to go and spend 15, 20 hours with and fall in love with. And, and so I've taken that same kind of philosophy, selling philosophy, going, okay, because I'll never be able to emulate the bookstore mm. because I'm not there on the floor with the person. But what can we do to get as close as that as we can without being there? What can we do? So I hire book people, book experts who are, who are merchandising the site. And it could be a, a new debut author who's never, uh, never written a book before, but they read it and they know this is going to win the next book of the year. And it just so happens that this is what happened in the last year, Trent Dalton with Boy Swallows Universe, wow. debut author. The guys backed it um, right from the first week. We had uh, quite a few thousand pre-orders and that's, uh, that's taking the, the age-old sales philosophy uh, about connecting with the customer and adding value. How can you add as much value as you can through the process of, of the transaction that then um, the the customer is is it's evident that they that you actually were doing something that could 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 assist. Otherwise, you're just an online catalog. Otherwise, look, browse through, find what you want, and we'll take your money. And when I first started Booktopia and I was doing my research, I went into a Borders store over three days, uh, spent eight hours there. The first day was very discreet. I was kind of writing down notes about books and titles and authors and and no one came up to me and then the next day I went back I was a little bit more obvious I had my paper and pen out and I was kind of walking around the third day I was actually walking around like a foreman mm. making notes just seeing if some, not one person came up to me over eight hours over three days and I thought to myself you know their their selling philosophy is like we know how to buy books and there they all are there are the checkouts you find what you want and we'll take your money and in the end Sure, that worked at 90%, but if you take away that top 10%, and that's the 10% you need to go from profit into loss after a while, uh, the losses accumulate. And, and I think every business needs to think about how they're going to add value in terms of someone wanting to hand over their money and say, thank you for, thank you for doing business, I'm going to trust you with my money, and, and we're going to deliver um, was really really important. So, I think that's really interesting that that your background was in recruiting, because if that if I was interviewing you for my book, I would think that we would have touched on your core skill set there, like I've talked about with everybody else. Because that method, as you said, in recruiting, you've got you really have to work on both sides, and that's that's really what you're you're doing because you've got the you you're managing you're managing people into the whole buying process and I can see that would bring a whole different dimension to serving, truly serving the customer. Well, an interesting insight to the book industry is that, uh, and I found it astonishing. There was a lot of things that I found astonishing with the book industry because it's a 570-year-old industry mm. and decades, certainly in modern publishing, are very similar tactics and, and, and ways of going about doing business. So uh, in the beginning, as we got to a little bit of a size, we kind of came onto the radar and, and reps started to pop in to our little warehouse and meet with 
want to meet with us because we started to buy more and more books. Said, well, you should go and meet Booktopia because look how many books they're buying. So they came in and they started talking to me and they said, uh, so the, uh, these are the next big books coming out in, in the next few months. There's this one and there's that one and et cetera. And they're telling me all about these books. And I said, okay, what are your bestsellers? You know, what, what are people buying? Oh, I, I don't know anything about that. I'm just here to tell you about what's coming out. I said, well, what, what should we be having in stock in our warehouse? What, what, what might, might people buy? Oh, I don't know anything about that. And it was amazing. Mm. And when I went to and met, I went to publisher events and I met people from the industry, they were all excited about the next big book coming out, probably like the entertainment uh, industry, uh, Dirty Dancing, yeah. who, who knows whether it's going to be a su success. Opening night, phew, it was a success. Yeah. Um, and some of them are flops. Yep. You don't know. And so I was amazed that these books that they had been that they sold every single week, every single year for years. That was paying for their uh, their offices that overlook Sydney Harbour, their administration staff. But they weren't interested in. I was I was loving them because yep. they were boring, but they were dependable, and they were they they were still being bought. When when Harper Lee died, the woman that wrote yep. Killer Mockingbird, which was fifty years before, her book was. Um, she was, I think it was, she was earning 3 mil million US a year from the royalties of a book that she wrote 50 years ago. Mm. Um, it's, and there's, there's tons and tons of books, Count of Monte Cristo, yep. Charles Dickens, Jane, Jane Austen, all these books still sell all the time. 1984, Brave New World have just been in the news in the last week and they're now, and they're being bought again. And, and so... It was astonishing to me, and so for where I was coming from, my perspective of looking at um, and my, you know, the the three dimensional view that I saw of the book industry was that wow, a lot of opportunity, I. And I could see that no one else was interested. I talked about romance before; it was the same, lavish books, really expensive books that a bookshop would go, oh my god, they cost seven hundred dollars or six hundred dollars or very technical medical books people were buying. Uh, we just stocked them and people bought them. Boring, not that exciting, but that's how we built the business. And someone's buying them. It was, yeah. it was quite, quite incredible. So as we kind of, um, as we wrap up, oh, we've been going for an hour, that's pretty impressive, um, nice journey. In terms of the book, and I guess that's why you're here, Michael, is to, you've, you've written this book. It's in many ways, it's not a, um, there's no biography in it, but it's, uh, there's a bit of storytelling, but you've really gone out and interviewed some of some of the people that have really manifested a lot in their lives. And and what what can you kind of like if someone was saying, actually, I could really do with a book like that because I don't know, maybe I'll just pull a chapter out. I just want to like randomly pick one yeah. person. I assume you've got yeah, you got you can do that certain for sure. Twenty pages on each or something yeah. or something like that, and you can you can just kind of go, all right, I can just kind of not have to go from the beginning to the end in one go. You can actually cherry pick and, of course, and yes. just f jump around. What, what, what would a reader or what would an entrepreneur or a budding entrepreneur or uh, – you've got to understand my, my definition of entrepreneurship, uh, that it comes from the French word, which means to enter and take. So as an entrepreneur, we kind of, we kind of find things in the, in the universe and, and bring them into, into reality. Into reality. Yeah, that, 
And so George it, W. Bush said there was no French word for entrepreneur. Turns out there is. He very uh, famously said that. Oh, uh, did he? Anyway, yeah. on the side. <laughs> he said a lot of funny stuff. Um, <laughs> he did indeed. So so as and so therefore I I don't necessarily see entrepreneurship as someone who started a company. It's about people who make the invisible visible. And absolutely. And so therefore um, you could be working for a company, come up with a new a new design for a system. Uh, you could be you could be working in the garden and you design a new new landscape. It doesn't it doesn't matter to me. So what are some of the and you're talking also Mavericks, Empire Builders, um, which I, I assume that an Empire Builder is probably for someone who's starting a business as a is a mountain range, uh, a few mountain ranges beyond your horizon uh, and you only get to start to see the empire much further down the track but um, what can we what can we kind of expect to some of the nuggets that we're going to get out of out of this for someone who's thinking of just kind of getting a little injection of information or inspiration firstly totally agree my definition of entrepreneur entrepreneurialism is somebody who's creating something where nothing exists exactly as you've said and Therefore, yes, yeah, definitely very closely aligned to an inventor. Talk about someone inventing something and getting in the garden. An inventor is also doing exactly the same thing. The only difference is oftentimes they're not commercialising it or they're, they're scientific in their approach. But it's the same thing because it's an act of creativity. You're making the invisible visible. You're creating something. You're giving it. You're giving birth to it. Thing is, with entrepreneurialism, it doesn't stop like having a child. It doesn't stop once you've given birth to it. You then have to to manage it and bring it through the various stages of its life. And that is what, that's where the book is interesting because everybody, anybody who's reading it could have a, a baby slash business in a different stage of its life cycle. Um, just like anybody who's got kids, you go, you got a teenager, you go and find somebody who's got a teenager, you got a toddler, you find somebody who's got a toddler. This book features people who've got things at all different stages, but all of whom have come out successful at the other at the other side of, of their you know their careers and so people can expect one to get genuine tangible advice and information from all of these people who either themselves or their businesses or brands are, are household names or well known or very very on the record as being very 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 successful so they can get genuine advice and information specific advice but also just general contextual advice so you know some of them talk specifically about do this do this don't do this i shouldn't have done that and also some of them through through reading their their story you know you, you're able to get the context of and the narrative of their life you know and and look at you know the general the way they've approached building their business kind of like you just explained now you know this this general general story which then inspires uplifts and just piques some ideas in your mind it is in some ways 23 mini biographies of people as well so you know it's also really i personally found it so fascinating myself like i said interviewing these people it was so interesting and they're just people with fascinating lives you know like like anybody of success your ordinary person living an extraordinary life and that's the case with with everybody in this book so it's it's like a great airport book it's a great plane book or or a travel book as well and because as you said i mean in some ways it's almost like a coffee table book you can jump in and out you don't have to read it from beginning to end um there's a bunch of other business information in there courtesy of yours truly which i've written around around uh 
the stories as well. And you know, we've got we, at the end also we do have a focus on corporate entrepreneurialism, which is really important. Trying to work and give advice and information to people in corporations who are, like you said, I mean, corporations were once started by somebody just because they're a big company. Once they were started by somebody, they fail left, right, and centre. You know, who would have thought MySpace would fail? And now we've got Facebook. You know, so even the biggest companies, Kodak failed, you know, um, Nokia. Companies every day, big companies need to continually innovate. They're aware of that. thing is that the managerial executive mindset is very different to an entrepreneurial mindset. So I, mean, I work with a lot of executives in corporations or CEOs on, on that very subject. So we, had a we have a bit of a focus on that in the book, which is, which is really interesting, and we talk about uh, how to avoid corporate failure. So, yeah, it's, it's a read where people are going to get information, they're going to be entertained, and they're going to read a bunch of great stuff about some really interesting people. Mm, how great. Michael, thanks for coming in. And, thanks, Tony. And being unplugged and unplanned. And uh, Michael Jacobson, Entrepreneurs, Mavericks and Empire Builders can buy it on Booktopia. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.